It's the passion that each of us has to make a difference in this vast battle against a world that's depleting its resources and that furniture is our alley. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. Tune in each month as I engage in conversations exploring projects, products, and inspiration driving New York City's innovative design community. This year, The Mic is exploring design for sharing. We're uncovering new ways for creative people to share space, materials, resources, ideas, processes, and inspiration, all while being physically apart. Each month, we listen to your stories, then I get to talk design with two inspiring guests. Want to be featured on the next episode of The Mic? Visit nycbydesign.com to tell us your design story. During today's show, I'm going to speak with two innovative New Yorkers at the forefront of sustainable design to explore the industry's value of nature and how circular practices are leading us to a better future. First, let's speak with Laurence Carr, a practitioner of sustainable design who artfully weaves well-being principles and ancient techniques together with contemporary design at her own eponymous firm. With an emphasis on circularity, Laurence Carr specializes in crafting sustainable residential, retail, and hospitality environments with a focus on healthy and renewable materials. In the process, Laurence has become passionate about furthering the circular economy dialogue in the interior design and furnishings industry. Before we speak with Laurence, let's hear how she defines the meaning of sustainability. To me, sustainability has two different but related meanings. At the micro level, it means choosing products that are safer for people at work and our families at home. Fewer emitted toxins and chemicals that harm our work and home environments and our mental well-being. At the micro level, it means mindfully choosing products that reduce our carbon footprint and ecological impact on the earth. Welcome to our show, Laurence. The first thing I want to ask you about is the overlap between the macro and micro concepts of sustainability that you speak about in your voice message. How do you think those concepts, when turned into inherent values, can lead us to a better future? Thanks, Debbie. That's great to be here. To me, sustainability has really several meanings for the environment at large. And that's where the macro definition comes from. It means mindfully and responsibly finding ways to reduce our carbon footprint and ecological impact on the earth. And to that goal, with that goal, seeking not just to lessen the damage, but also improve it. For a more personal perspective and maybe also a micro perspective, it's about living a life that can sustain the tests of time. This includes our physical and mental health and wellness, along with the spaces in which we live and work. So in total, uh, sustainability is about investing in being part of a solution for the world, for humanity, and for ourselves. Oh, so beautifully said. Laurence, as a, as a designer, 
How and why did sustainability become the cornerstone of your practice? My international experience and, you know, diverse business acumen have infused and elevated my work in the building, architecture and interior design industry. My main focus going into design was about creating restorative, regenerative, wellness-enhancing spaces for my clients. But I know that human wellness does not exist in a microcosm. So I've always been passionate about environmentalism. And once I saw the amount of carbon and waste generated by the interiors field, I made a commitment to myself that I would work to improve the world, one space at a time, one client's life at a time. And the industry slowly over time by making responsible choices and educating my peers about the importance of sustainability and circularity. Laurence, tell us a little bit about your background. How did these values become such a driving factor in your practice and work? I was born and raised in France, and my background started with uh, being really on stage from a very very young age, um, at the age of six years old, with performing arts. And I grew up in, while being educated on stage and really learning about the history and the culture of performing arts uh, from Russia to Europe. And that has fed really a real creativity and, and the creative aspects of, you know, costumes and being on stage as well as music and art and visual arts because a theater uh, comprises everything, music as well as the incredible visuality and texturality of costume and sets on stage. Um, from then, you know, um, through my um, performing arts career, I went from uh, France to Europe to the US uh, in New York City and, um, and then went back to Europe and created my own um, art or dance company um, and then toured through Europe. And then later on, I wanted to explore beyond that arena and worked into the major events. Um, and that brought me all the way to Australia with the Sydney Olympic Games. So I had this vision of setting back and seeing like a huge stage, you know, in front of me although it was a stadium, for the opening and closing ceremony and really organizing all of these aspects. And then I guess from there, you know, between that combined experience of performing arts, visual arts, and then event management, somehow while, you know, living in Australia, then Asia, and then returning to the U.S., um, that's where interior design and interior architecture kicked in. So that's part of, of um, my experience really in that sense, sits at the intersection of really having had a combined experience of all these experiences. But in between, I will say that I always practiced holistic alignment and meditation, always since I performed on stage. And that necessity to really always meditate and align became a holistic and a life practice. And so by entering into the interior design and architecture, you know, while I was going to the new school at Parsons and really learning the classical way what interior architecture and design is, I still had this background with, uh, I became in between a holistic health counselor and I wanted to find this intersection. And so 
designing for interiors is understanding particularly the physicality of how we use spaces. And that's where I really wanted to uh, design for well-being, wellness, and introduce that very important factor of healthy material and sustainability and circularity. It seems like your background on the stage and the sort of physicality of being on the stage has influenced your work in residential and hospitality projects then? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Physicality, circulation. We are human beings and how we circulate and, and actually take possession of a space really inform our choices and our lifestyle. Um, so, so actually that phase, that research phase as an interior architect and design with our clients, whether it's residential or hospitality, it's really about understanding, you know, what are we researching and how that space is used or will be used if it's a new construction. Laurence, you've said that sustainability is about living a life that can sustain the test of time. Can you tell us how you integrate this ethos into some of your clients' residential projects and their actual living spaces? So my expertise uh, sits really at the intersection of really providing healthy materials, non-toxicity, renewable materials, and the integration of ancient philosophies such as wabi-sabi, forest bathing, uh, sacred geometry, feng shui, and the environmental quality of biophilia. Um, There is really an important uh, factor, which is, you know, about nurture nature, which is bringing nature into our interiors and understanding how we human beings are really so drawn to nature because that's that's actually where we come from. Um, my interests focus on building interior architecture and design with a focus on sustainable and regenerative system, really by an intention and design. So from the very beginning of a project, we truly approach a project with that philosophy and how we are going to to integrate that intention and these designs through this ancient philosophy and by focusing on healthy materials and non-toxicity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so fascinating that sustainability, the way that you approach sustainability is both regarding the external world and the planet and the internal life of our spirit. And and I think that there's a, a wonderful way that the two, we can do both at the same time. We're not sacrificing, we're actually doing good in both areas. Absolutely, yes. You also work on hospitality projects, which is very different when you're working for a residential client, you're looking at sort of one family or one person in hospitality is really looking at much larger groups of people. Does your design approach differ for hospitality versus residential? And if it does, in what way? So we always focus on healthy interiors, and I guess the common factor is healthy interiors. However, you're absolutely right, you know, even the building laws and the construction laws are different in hospitality interiors versus residential interiors, especially if it's single family residences, which is where we specialize. What we do is still the approach is about, you know, understanding what are the existing materials, you know, is there a lot of furniture made of wood and, you know, how do they play in significant part of what is in the interiors? You know, how do we understand the different materials uh, that are being used 
and how many of every product that is in a hospitality environment affect and accounts for most of the environmental footprint, not only of the product, but of the interiors. You know, similarly, all of these chemicals that might be used to make sure we provide in hospitality environment, you know, stain resistant uh, these are chemicals, you know, so how can we address, you know, this need? Because the needs are very different in hospitality environments to address, you know, all the different clients who are coming and going and how to provide these still very luxurious yet healthy interiors with high traffic happening in, in these environments versus, you know, a single family, you know, residential. So we approach those, of course, depending on the clients and, and we really always focus on a harmful chemicals, you know, as long as we understand that they are, and we try to really explain that at the very beginning of a project, you know, so we can provide cost-effective interior design services, but that are tailored to understand and to bring this awareness to our clients about avoiding harmful chemicals, knowing that there are tens of thousands of chemicals that are used in making consumer products in furnishings, there are only five of them that we really, really have to consistently look for, you know, including VOCs, which contain, contain some of these formaldehyde chemicals, as well as flame retardants, you know, PVC, vinyl, um, and so on. But yes, that's, that's how we approach it. Do most of your clients come to you specifically because of your focus on sustainability, or do you introduce notions of sustainability to your clients after you meet them? Actually, I have to say that they come to us because they actually know and understand that we are specifically found on this service. We have been providing this blog that I write uh, very consistently, specifically on wellness, well-being, sustainability, circularity since 2017 and uh, way before, you know, 2020, way before it was in the large media, you know, that topic about wellness, you know, sustainability. So there is really, they actually target, you know, very precisely uh, Laurent Scar Incorporated for these services. Um, and, and we're very happy to provide these this projects uh, and these services. Where can people find your blog? They can find our blog on our website, laurencegar.com slash forward blog. The name of our blog is Beyond Aesthetics, and we actually talk profusely about uh, wellness, sustainability, circularity, and so on. Lawrence, I understand you're planning on launching your own product line in the near future. Tell us, tell us more. So I always strive to really talk about uh, circularity, particularly since 2019, I've been partnering with the Circular City Week in New York. And the first year in 2019 gave a keynote a speaking engagement and really talked about circularity. And then every year since then, we've been partnering. I've also been invited in different faculties, you know, to be a guest faculty and, and presenting about circularity sustainability. So a couple of, uh, you know, a few actually furniture companies just uh, approached us. And right now, um, I can't, you know, <laughs> reveal the name yet, but we are developing uh, the first private collections of cradle to cradle uh, certified materials uh, collection for Laurence Garding. And, and hopefully this collection will be starting to be available this fall, 2021. Congratulations. That sounds Really exciting. Thank you so much. Laurence, thank you so much for joining me here today on the mic. And if you could stick around, I'd love to have you join me again after I chat with Michael J. Hirshhorn. I think it'll be fun to have a, a conversation with both of you. 
Now I'd like to introduce everyone to Michael J. Hirschhorn. Michael is the founder and CEO of Mebel Transforming Furniture. It is a new social enterprise dedicated to expanding the marketplace for beautiful, high-quality furniture reimagined from old wood and metal. With a mission to redefine reclaimed and champion the next generation of furniture with values, Mebel aspires to be a zebra company driven by purpose. Let's hear a bit from Michael on his passion to develop furniture that accelerates the transition to a more environmentally and economically sustainable world. There's something quite wild about the creativity of artisans who can approach a stack of gnarly old factory beams or busted splintery skateboards or discarded oil barrels or washed ashore ocean plastic and reimagine these materials into gorgeous new high quality furniture and in ways that aesthetically transcend their original uses. Out of this obsession, five years ago, I founded Mebel Transforming Furniture. Our company motto, we're champions of a next generation of Welcome, furniture Michael. with values. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Debbie. And also, I want to say thank you to Laurence, who's been a real inspiration to me, and her, including her blog, which is incredibly informative to our practice. Since I was a kid, I love building things. And uh, this fascination continues to the world of artisans who can reimagine old materials into beautiful new furniture. And that's the genesis of Mebel Transforming Furniture. How can we take perceptions of furniture made from materials such as wood, metal, plastic that's reused and bust out of the idea that it's a, just a narrow field into a broad and elegant range? We don't ourselves make furniture. We source from artisans around the country, around the globe who are often small-scale shops, often handmade, producing cutting-edge furniture. Some of it is classically an aesthetic, which highlight the perfect imperfections of Reclaimed, and others is furniture that you wouldn't know from high-end products, except if you asked that it came from Reclaimed. Over time, and I think especially in this last year, as the world exploded and the pandemic and climate change has come to the forefront, we have far more deeply embedded our work in Reclaimed in a series of concentric circles, like Laurence was talking about a, a macro picture and a micro picture. We've been doing the same and looking at how we do work as advancing the fight against climate change and healthier interiors. Michael, I have, I have a very important question for you. Tell us about your name, Mebel. It's M-E-B-L. So tell us what it means, why, why those specific letters, and how you came up with your nomenclature. There's nothing I would love more than to answer that question. <laughs> Mebel in Yiddish is the word for furniture. And the root letters M, B, and L are core of the word furniture in some 42 different languages around the world. My grandmother an immigrant from the old country, came over at the turn of the century to the U.S. And I think her story parallels reclaimed furniture. Out of a splintery, difficult, harsh past, built a new imaginative life for herself and her family in the United States. And that was that's my inspiration. How does the name reflect the ethos of the company, if at all? 
I think that it's the ability to reimagine from old into new, and it's the second half of the name transforming furniture, which is micro level, turning the old into new, and macro level, transforming an entire industry away from linear or non-circular practices into circular practices in which where it goes at the end is as important as where it starts. When and why did you found Mebel? I founded it seven years ago. We've been three years in incubation and getting off the ground, a couple of years trying our feet as a retail business, and really now for two years engaged in focus on what our current strategies. And why? It's the passion that each of us has to make a difference in this vast battle against a world that's depleting its resources, and that furniture is our alley, and that furniture can make a difference. How it's made, where the materials come from, what the labor practices are, what the quality is of the extraction of the materials, how it's packaged, how it's transported, all facets of furniture, along with food and environment and in other fields, can make a big concrete difference. Is there something in your background that led you to a more sustainability-oriented focus? Two things. Before, I was in the human rights field, which is always asking questions about who's making it, where's it coming from, what's the equity of opportunity. And also, I'd credit my kids, Debbie. I have two teen teenagers who are high schoolers now, and boy, do they bring these questions to the forefront all the time. Like, they sure what do. are you doing sure about do. our world, which is falling yeah. apart, and you're leaving to us on fire? I actually just saw a data visualization by the artist Georgia Lupi that outlines how much plastic is actually in the air that we don't even see. And I thought it was so apropos, given that I was speaking to both of you today, how important every single effort we make is to the health of the planet and our people. Yes. Plastic in the air, plastic yeah. in the ocean. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Michael, can you talk a little bit about the importance of working with raw materials from nature and how that impacts the aesthetic of the work produced by designers with circularity at the forefront of their practice? Our focus is on reclamation of old materials. A key part of what we're trying to do is harness business strategies for the success towards sustainability. What, what makes this an effective, forward-looking business proposition? Not a, quote, externality, but something that's sustainable and profitable. For some, we believe there's a far bigger market than at present for furniture that highlights the aesthetics of reuse, uh, the quirks the imperfect fit, the rust and oxidation from where the nails used to be. And for others, that's not their cup of tea. And we're trying to work with others to introduce, to further the idea that mainstream furniture, quote, regular furniture, high-end, high-quality, enduring, can be made from the reuse of materials as effectively as virgin trees, creating plastic or metal, new metal. Now, when you say old materials, how old? Oh, wow. Sometimes you're talking about uh, a barn built in 1700s. Sometimes you're talking about old original forest wood 
which comes from 500 years ago. Sometimes you're talking about a skateboard built eight years ago that's busted and is, instead of heaped off to the landfill, is turned into really colorful, imaginative furniture. And Debbie, a, a key aesthetic for us, a key question is always, does the new use transcend the old usage? Like we're less interested in a table made from a busted skateboard that looks like a busted skateboard on legs. What we want is furniture where an artist applies their imagination to transform it into something that's true to its roots, but defines its own aesthetic and is gorgeous on its own. That buyers would be interested in it even if they come in with no stated interest in making an environmentally sustainable purchase, just because it's interesting, beautiful, cool, functional, high quality. Yeah, and it's nice to have a little bit of a backstory, an origin story to the piece that you own. Um, Michael, I know that you have an expertise in education. Um, do you have any plans to, to integrate educational programming into Mebel to help sort of broadcast and amplify your purpose? I'd say that's the forefront of what we're doing now. My interest in education is how do you talk about these things in ways that big numbers of people understand? You know, there's a big, often technical, often wonky world around circularity, around sustainability. How do you translate that into terms that's plain English, that's engaging, that's interesting, and that puts the incentives of the furniture buyer as the um, psychological motivation behind what you're talking about. You call Mebel a zebra company. Tell us more about that. What does that mean? Zebra companies are defined first and foremost by purpose. Of course, we're out to make money, but our purpose is a mission of advancing the micro level. How can we bust through current and we think too narrow perceptions of what furniture made from reuse of materials can be? And at the meta level, how can we be part of broad, much broader campaigns for a more environmentally and economically sustainable world? That's what really drives us. That's what makes us a zebra company. You mentioned earlier that your focus is now on finding practitioners all over the country, all over the world that you can help amplify. What is the curation process? How do you go about finding the practitioners that you want to work with? Core to our business model has been that there's an incredible amount of talent out there, women and men making furniture. That's five, six, seven layers hidden on the internet. It has a very low profile. And so literally a lot of what we do is scour the internet on, on the eighth page of the Google search. Also, we keep our antenna up and we listen to the, the practitioners that we work with, the woodworkers, often know someone else who's doing something really imaginative. And through an expanding social media presence, uh, talented original furniture makers start reaching out to us and suggesting, could you uh, uh, post our material? How fast is this specific part of the industry growing from your perspective? Too slowly. <laughs> oh, but really? I, I think we may be getting into this in a few minutes. I think this past 14 months is going to lead to an explosion in awareness and interest. 14 months, of course, meaning pandemic, wildfires in yes. California, Texas, a state synonymous with energy being in the dark for a week, the palpability of the unsustainability of our current ways, I think is going to ramp up 
industry and consumer interest in new ways of doing things like not before. You know, the, to those who say, let's reemerge from the pandemic, not to get, quote, get back to normal, but to reimagine of a whole different way. We're with them. That's where we're going. We think that the effective business proposition going forward is going to be for furniture makers who are industry leaders in all sorts of ways, like Laurence was talking about, like I'm talking about, that, that lead the market. Greater use of reclamation of materials, greater attention to the toxicity of products, greater attention to the healthiness of interiors. We really think this is the moment. Michael, I have one last question for you before we bring Laurence back to have a conversation with both of us. If someone were to have materials like that old skateboard, where would they send them to be repurposed? How could they help that effort? Yeah. In a literal sense, go on the internet and tie into or reach out to us. You know, we could tell you about 10 different companies, small companies around the country that are working. That's their source material. And most of them have relationships with skate shops, for example, where customers, when they buy a new skateboard, they turn in their busted old skateboard. In a broader sense, I think you're touching on one of the uh, significant inefficiencies in the marketplace at present. There's, there's problems with what to do with things that people don't want anymore. Uh, if you have a sofa in New York City and you're trying like crazy to not just leave it on the sidewalk, so to speak, or literally, it is very difficult to find a place that will accept it. Same with a mattress, same with a lot of furniture. Same with materials like this. We do get these kind of inquiries. And there isn't a, um, the financial incentives at present to match uh, the availability of um, older materials with those who would love to have it. The current incentive system is to scrap it. Well, let's hope that people listening know that they can reach out to you to be able to help find and create that circularity. Before we dive back in to speak with our guests, let's hear a message from our sponsor. Caesar Stone takes the luxury of quartz outside. The groundbreaking outdoor collection provides the convenience of stain-resistant, easy-to-clean, highly durable surfaces with the brand's stunning designs. Best of all, the beautifully durable material can also withstand rain, snow, or shine. Visit CaesarStoneUS.com to discover the outdoor collection today. Laurence, I'd love to bring you back. Welcome back to the mic. Um, I have questions for you both um, and, and some questions that I'll address to, to either of you. But we have been talking about circularity and we have been talking about how circularity relates to sustainability. For our listeners out there that might not be familiar with the term circularity, um, Laurence, do you want to help educate our listeners? What does circularity mean in relation to sustainability and design? I think there are several dimensions along uh, which we can make progress. Circularity is a non-linear economy. We are currently in an economy that is all about make, take, and waste. Uh, circularity is about um, reusing, upcycling, transforming, and really aiming for zero waste. And in that sense, uh, circularity is part of uh, sustainability, but it's 
sort of the next frontier. It's about thinking beyond uh, existing project products. And as Michael was mentioning, it's about thinking about the life cycle assessment of an entire product, about where does it come from? How is it sourced? How is it made? Uh, what does this product uh, go through to be made in a manufacturing uh, space, as well as how is it transported? And what is the end use of that product? Is it going to be reused? Or is it going to just, you know, be part of toxic waste? So um, a way to really explain circularity uh, in the furnishing industry, particularly, and the interior design industry is really about understanding that the more we use either existing antiques, you know, we used to use that word a lot. Right now we use vintage. These are beautiful products to use um, and reuse and, and, and upcycle and transform. You know, we have sofas, uh, headboards or or different uh, existing chairs you know how can we reuse them instead of just you know trying to get the next new thing um, also as michael's you know business provides and highlights is that how can we sort of return some of our products to some manufacturers and then maybe ask them to help us extend its life and and transform it to make it functional and usable I have a question that I'm, I'm hoping that you can answer, Michael or Laurence, or both of you. What is your take on New York City's biodiversity? Does New York City have a good grasp on sustainability, or do we have a long way to go? I'll take a first pass. Yes, and profoundly no. Yes, New York City has a commitment to a vision of becoming a zero-waste city by 2030. At this stage, it's a vision. And I think it, the city has uh, been derailed from aggressive implementation over the last year by the pandemic. If you listen to the debates among the leading mayoral candidates, almost all of them talk in terms of uh, reframing their tenure, the four years to start next year, in terms of reimagining along lines of environmental sustainability, which is very encouraging. Of course, the proof will be in the electoral pudding of what, what actually, what's actually put in place. But I think you, if you had listened to mayoral debates four years ago or eight years ago, it wasn't even on the radar screen. Now it's a leading topic that gets, that's asked at every debate around that forefront, and that's encouraging. Um, one last point. This is about design, circular economy. In, this, in concepts of the circular economy, design is everything. Design is the epicenter. Design meaning, again, at that micro level, what, what's a chair? What goes into a chair? How is it designed, a sofa? At the meta level, it's the redesign of the entire system. You know, it's the idea that if you're designing things that ultimately lead to waste, that it's falling short of, of design standards. Laurence, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. I love biodiversity. I mean, it is well documented that New York is one of the most progressive cities in the U.S. when it comes to energy efficiency and being eco-friendly. Obviously, this is really positive in absolute terms, but there are good reasons for it uh, locally, given that New York, believe it or not, has incredible biodiversity. New York City's location on the border of New England and the mid-Atlantic uh, locations and regions means that it is very biodiverse, from grassland to forest to wetlands and rivers. 
So in fact, the five counties of New York City have about 26 distinct ecological habitat types, including 1,450 plant species and 220 native species of bees. So for sure, there are many threats to New York City that biodiversity, including habitat uh, alterations, you know, as well as the spread of invasive species, pollution and climate change, including temperature and sea level rise. While there is a lot to do, it seems to me that organizations like the Department of Environmental Conservation and the Department of Parks and Recreation have a strong grasp on environmental and ecological concerns. In addition, I would say that it appears to be uh, that there is a strong political will with a comprehensive program launched in 2007 called Plan NYC by then Mayor Michael Bloomberg, but continued by the current mayor Bill de Blasio. The, this program comprises sweeping initiative to make New York City more sustainable and green. And and then the latest and very encouraging indication of this direction was a decision last year to put in place a new energy code requiring new and existing New York City buildings to meet stricter energy efficiency requirements. In New York, building accounts for about 80% of carbon emissions. That's incredible. One thing that I love about New York City is the million tree effort that's been ongoing for, I think, at least the ten, at least 10 years. Um, I was walking my dog this morning and I saw a brand new tree. They always put little tags on them and say, hi, I'm your new neighborhood tree. And uh, there was one in Chelsea that made me really happy to see that that's ongoing. Um, Michael, you mentioned that the pandemic is impacting sustainability in New York City. Um, in what ways have you seen it impacted and what can we do to help? I think the, the biggest impact is inspiring, encouraging. You know, it's the heightened awareness along with a year of climate disasters around the country, around the reality of what's needed, that the attention to shifting in some of the ways we're talking about towards greater circularity, towards greater sustainability, moves from the realm of the Laurences and Mebels of the world to the mainstream of people in, in their daily practices. What do you recycle? What do you do with your furniture when you go out and buy something? Are you looking at the price equation that takes into account the longevity of it, that it may not be in the moment the least expensive table or chair or sofa, but if it lasts for 30 or 40 or 50 years, it's actually a much better value for what you buy. These kind of awarenesses, I think, are translating into a far broader, spurred by the pandemic and all of its bearing of inequality and the unsustainable ways in which we're living outside of the bounds of the capacity of the earth. What is one thing that you each hope to see from the industry that could bring us closer to a sustainable future? But I'd say that what I would see as new trends and, and, and future, and maybe I'll break your rule and say a couple of things, but I'd say that, um, you know, decluttering, people understanding how decluttering their home, their spaces are some of the ways, you know, that, that um, 
that can really help them understand maybe to consume less, uh, get more, surround ourselves with, with, with less, but maybe more essential and, and functional you know, aspects and, and, and elements. Um, I'd say biophilia is, is very important, the, the, aspect, the aspect of biophilic design and, and how to bring more nature in as an environmental quality. It's not about just bringing plants, it's about understanding how we can get closer to nature really develop this authentic relationship with nature, respect it when we are outdoors, and then bring it more indoors. And I would say as well as, you know, really understanding the importance. I think the pandemic has raised people's awareness about the health of their home environments, and specifically the effect that materials have in their uh, environments. Yeah, absolutely, you did. Before, Michael, before I ask you the same question, do the terms sustainable and circular have different meanings? Because we're using them almost separately. And I'm, I'm curious, do they have different meanings to you? I think they intersect. So sustainable is the idea that we are living outside of the bounds of what is sustainable, can endure for the long term in our earth and in our society. One particular economic and conceptual model to break to a more sustainable world are the principles of the circular economy. It's an approach that's very broad, incorporates the values of sustainability, which is more of a lowercase s, broad outlook on living. And circular economy is a specific broad scale system for fundamental change, looking as Laurence was saying, even just take one example that a company in the current way of doing things, is responsible for producing a high-quality chair, period. In a circular economy, a company has to step back and say, what is it about the design of that chair that not only means that when the, the original consumer is finished with it, that they have nothing to do with what happens to it? That, in fact, they could offer buyback programs. Or if a leg is damaged along the way. It doesn't become simpler to just toss it out, but you can replace the leg. Is the chair disassemblable such that for shipping purposes, it can be flat packed, which is a far more environmentally savvy way to transport things than the big boxes in which full assembled furniture come in. And, and amplify that if you're talking, say, about a large table or a large sofa. Also, disassemble means that someone is far more likely to take it with them. Uh, great credit to a company that I wouldn't have suspected a few years ago I'd be on a podcast giving great credit to, IKEA, trying to get ahead of the curve to say, how can we be a business leader around these questions at the vast scale at which they operate and not only include assembly instructions, which they're synonymous with, but also disassembly instructions with the, material, the furniture that they sell, such that a user finds it con as convenient to disassemble it and move it to their next apartment as to leave it, or as one college age you know, friend of mine, I saw him say, I'm not gonna take this sofa. If you don't take it, I'm gonna leave it on the sidewalk. I think circularity you know, is contained with this sustainability and it's really a subset of it. So I, so I want to go ahead and, you know, just re-explain, like, sustainability is, is really a broad concept that refers to meeting the needs of today without compromising the future and concerns a broad number of factors, including economic, environmental, and social. 
But circularity specifically refers to how resource cycles work. It refers to a real industrial system that promotes reuse, upcycling, hence regeneration and waste elimination. And in other words, all circular practices are really truly sustainable, but not all sustainable initiatives are circular. So the reason I'm such an advocate for circularity is because I believe it is the model that best promotes sustainability for the construction and design industries. And to that effect, I actually produced a whole video series that will soon be streamed on the platform. Wonderful. I, I can't begin to thank you for teaching me so much in this podcast. I have one last question for you both. Michael, you mentioned IKEA. How do you think we can make the circular economy and sustainable practices more mainstream so that they are really part of every company's ethos, every company's purpose, and every company's behavior? I think you do that through public policy, through corporate leadership, and through economic incentives. At the broad level, I'll get back to those in a second, and I think you would becomes more mainstream when each one of us adopts the everyday practices that make a difference in this way. New York State is debating policy around what Laurence referred to a while back, a concept called extender producer responsibility, where is it legislated that the company is responsible not just for making a product, but also for its post-consumer use, taking it back, having a secondary market, making it easy to have parts that re to replace broken or the or the leg that the dog chewed. That's an example of public policy that's enlightened, that if you make it a requirement, it becomes the industry norm to follow that. Corporate leadership, we mentioned one example before of a huge corporation. I also would give a shout out to a tiny startup called Sabai Design, which is founded in New York just a couple of years ago. And it's all about sofas for a very particular demographic, sort of the 20 and 30-somethings, that follow these principles that we've been talking about. It mainstreams it because, this is the key, Debbie, that they're making sofas that can be disassembled, that are not made with toxic materials, that can replace parts, they will take back, and without a sacrifice of great design and elegance, that it's not a trade-off. That's the question for the design field for the next decade. How do we do these things so that a, a disassembled table doesn't mean a clunky table, that it's a refined table? How is the sofa the same? These become market-compelled changes because it's in the interest of consumers and businesses to go in this direction, not something you do because you happen to be on the bandwagon of environmental sustainability. Michael, thank you. Laurence, the last word with you. I think there is real progress on the supply side uh, to start with. That's the first point I want to make. Specifically, there has been real progress in the way that investors are taking sustainability seriously and insisting on the sustainable practices of the companies in which they invest. I spoke recently at Circular City Week 2021 with respect to BlackRock, the largest asset management firm in the world, which oversees 8.7 trillion of assets under management. BlackRock insists on the transparent reporting of sustainability metrics and differentially invest in sustainable companies. 
So it recently reported a 96% increase in capital invested between 2019 and 2020 in sustainable funds and a 363% increase in companies disclosing sustainability. So they also reported that COVID has accelerated this trend. The second point is that consumer behavior in our industry is changing. According to GWT Intelligence, 86% of consumers agree that building and furnishings manufacturers, companies, and brands continue to deplete finite resources and are stealing from the future. Whether it's structures, interiors, furniture, appliances, textile, or paints, consumers are speaking with their wallets and the demands for transparency, chemical-free products, as well as healthy materials with standard certification is growing. And lastly, I will say that it is our duty as designers to work on education. We professionally in the industry have a duty to acquire the best tools to raise awareness of chemical products and health effects in people's homes, workplace and hospitality environments, but also respond to an increasing existing eco-conscious consumer demand. We, we know that, you know, our kids, I have three kids, they're all teenagers, generation, you know, Zs there, you know, millennials are very interested, but, you know, the whole audience is, and consumer, the whole gener- multi-generations now are really interested in this. The more we, we members in the industry use our voices as professionals and choices of materials to support secular practices, the more awareness we raise. The more awareness we raise, the more it's adopted. And the more it's adopted from your mainstream, the more it becomes. So I foresee a really highly secular future in which people look back in shock that we ever did it any differently. I I truly hope so. I think that the ideas that you both have shared today make it very clear that sustainability and circularity are not only important to people and the planet, but also to profit. <laughs> Laurence Carr and Michael J. Hirshhorn, thank you so much today for joining us to talk Nurturing Nature. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Debbie. And thank you also, Laurence. I'm a big fan of yours and learn a lot from your blog and other writings. We hope this conversation can challenge our audience to think about how we can all value nature and circularity and how as design professionals or creative enthusiasts, we can lead more sustainable lives and practices to impact future generations. There is no question that great design can help us all be better stewards of nature and care for the thousands of other species that share this planet with us. Thank you again for joining us today on NYC by Designs. The mic, let's talk design again next month. Please follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter to be the first to find out about next month's featured guests and the latest in New York design.